Hello, you're listening to Shorthand, a BFI Network and Film Hub Southeast podcast. Whether you're actively making a short film or just passively thinking about it, this is a podcast designed to help you on the journey from coming up with a compelling short film idea to editing it into a finished product. Applications for the BFI Network Short Film Fund open on the 14th of March, which is still plenty of time to finesse that script you're working on and find a team that you want to make it with. And we've created a podcast that will provide some pointers on doing exactly that. In the second episode, we're talking to directors about how they've honed their visions and then communicated that to collaborators and funders, as well as how they've gained confidence and used limitations to their advantage. I don't think growing up I was kind of, oh, directing is the thing that I definitely want to do, but I knew that I loved the world of kind of film and TV. I was very lucky in a sense to be an actress as a child so I got to be on sets and kind of grow up around people working in that industry and I think that led to me you know developing a real passion for the world of it and I think what I what I loved so much and continue to love to this day was the kind of collaborative nature of film and TV and the fact that certainly growing up and I think still I still feel is that everyone working in these jobs is doing it because they're passionate about it and because they love it because it's it's too difficult to just fall into I think and so I think it was that kind of growing passion for the industry in general and starting off getting to experience what that was like from in front of the camera but then developing more of an interest in being behind the camera. That's Ella Jones talking about how she discovered directing was something she wanted to or could do. Ella is an award-winning film and TV director based in London. Her recent and upcoming television work includes HBO's comedy horror series The Baby, as well as Back to Life, Pandemonium and Behind the Filter for the BBC. Ella's short films have played at festivals internationally and include the creative England-backed comedy Sarah Chong is Going to Kill Herself. She recently finished post-production on Miss Fortunate, a short comedy drama written by Molly O'Shea and starring Alex Lawther and Ben Whishaw, and Petra, a short drama written by and starring Charlotte Hamblin. You're about to hear Ella talk about what she considers to be her first directing gig and finding collaborators and people that she was coming up through the industry with. My first film directing gig is kind of a tricky one to break down. I guess it could mean three different things in a sense. It could mean the first thing that I ever directed. It could be the thing that I kind of see as like a, a my breakout kind of defining thing that I directed. And then I guess the third thing could be the first paid thing I did because all three are kind of different, but significant in different ways. So I guess the first thing I ever directed for screen was a short film that I did with some friends and a tiny camera at my friend's house. And we literally kind of got, you know, a few passionate friends together. And me and my friend, we made the breakfast and we also like, held the lights and my friend did the costume and everything was just kind of um all hands on deck but it was really really fun but very much like in a vacuum of self-funded low budget calling in favors just um making it possible really and then the first kind of defining or breakout kind of film I did was a, a short film that was my first funded properly funded short film which was through Creative England it was a scheme uh, called Funny Girls for female comedy directors and that was an incredible opportunity for me and I think for the other um, female directors who took part in the scheme because they've all gone on to do really amazing things and it basically I think there were five films that got funded through this scheme which was through BFI Network and Creative England with Big Talk and Baby Cow, the production companies I think were involved. We basically applied with a script and the writer I was working with I'd met at a 
production company I'd interned and then worked at and she it was the first thing she'd written and we kind of applied on a whim thinking you know we'll give it a go and then yeah we got selected it was quite a long selection process involved a weekend in Brighton uh, developing the scripts and working with script editors and stuff which was amazing and then yeah the opportunity to make a funded short film with support as well and development help was amazing and off the back of that film I got an agent and I got me and the writer and the producer who made the film got a meeting with film four and then got a kind of feature commission and so various very exciting things happened off the back of that and that kind of became and kind of still is in a weird way for that was a long time ago a kind of cooling card short film and it definitely allowed me to make the next step so the third kind of first directing gig in a sense would be like my first paid directing gig which was a tv taster for Channel 4. So that I think is for a lot of directors who are kind of stepping into the world of TV or paid work if you don't go down the commercials route is kind of you do like tasters and teasers and like they're kind of mini pilots so it's like 10 minutes long or 15 minutes long and often they don't the idea is not for them to be broadcast it's more to act as as a taster for a kind of a pitch for wider series so I did one of those with a company and that was my first experience of directing in a paid environment. I think that collaboration is one of the things that really attracted me to directing and the industry as a whole. And I absolutely love working with writers and producers. And I love that process of of collaboration that it takes, I think. There's obviously, you know, a real interest in the auteur and the person who writes and directs it all. And I have a lot of respect for those people, but I also think that that's not the only way to do things. And that you can have something that's just as distinctive and authored through a collaboration with kind of trusted people that are all working towards the same end goal. For me, I think your collaborators as a director are so important, even as a director who writes their own stuff. um, Your collaborators are your heads of department, so your director of photography, your first AD. Those people are people that you'll often take on future jobs and you're allowed to, as a director, select those people because everyone recognises that they're such an important relationship and how you work together is going to so key to the uh, end goal in terms of finding this collaborators I guess it's just you know what's really interesting is that I think so often it can seem like you have to go down this one linear path to get to where you want to get to so I want to be a director so I'm just gonna make films and then become a director and then it happens and it and it's quite tricky because there's no clear ladder to follow and everyone's journey is different and I think that that can seem it certainly did for me seem kind of scary and and you know like you can feel a bit lost but at the same time looking back I think those different kind of what can seem circuitous kind of jobs and things that you do along the way actually allow you to learn so much and build connections so the writer that I made my first funded short film with was working as an office manager in the you know in the production company that I was working in so we became friends and got on in a, as colleagues, both doing jobs that weren't really the jobs that we ultimately wanted to do. The director of photography who made 
first short films with me my friend met because they were both volunteering on an nfts film so you know and they were both volunteering in different roles but they kind of saw each other and were like oh do you want to do something ourselves and then they did so you know it, it's kind of all of these unpredictable but ultimately it makes sense it's like the more the more we put ourselves out there and the more experience we get in different ways in a broad capacity then i think we we meet people who are like-minded one of the biggest pieces of advice and certainly i was given and I would pass on even though it seems so kind of yeah right obvious is like make stuff but make stuff and show people stuff because you can that's the only way that you can both learn but also that you can put yourself out there and that ultimately it might not be the first thing that you make that attracts people's attention but it might instead attract collaborators and then you might together then build something better and then you'll create something better and then ultimately the people that you want to kind of see it and respond to it will at some point and so it's just yeah putting yourself out there and being brave. In the next section Ella discusses how she approaches working on material that she didn't write, honing her instincts as a director conveying that approach to potential collaborators or funders, and gaining confidence by using every project she works on as an opportunity to bank knowledge. I really enjoy the process of coming to a script as a director, because there's a level of fresh eyes and fresh perspective that you can bring. I think for me, it's also been really helpful. And again, going back to that thing of kind of seemingly circuitous routes to get where you want to get to is that I um, worked for a long time as a script editor. And that you know, on one level was a job that allowed me to, that paid the bills and allowed me to kind of keep pursuing my directing. But actually, I learned so much from script editing that I've been able to take into my directing. And what I think fundamentally it gave me is an understanding of story, which I think is how every director, in my eyes, when approaching a narrative project, uh, should be approaching the script and how to bring it to life. Because ultimately, I think as a director, it's your responsibility to tell the story. So in terms of bringing my own stamp to something, I don't really come at it from a like, how am I going to make my mark on it? Because I actually think kind of everyone's going to, you know, whether they want to or not bring their own kind of stamp just subconsciously by the way that we imagine what's on the page and the shots that we visualize and everything else but all I can do is come at it from trying to understand the story and if I don't understand that that's where I start to ask the questions and then that kind of um, informs the choices I make as a director. I think it's an endless thing for a director is is how do you communicate a visual medium and how you're going to approach a visual medium through both words and visuals. And it's something that continues to be true, you know, throughout, I think, your career. And certainly when I go in to pitch for TV shows, that's what I'm doing. I'm having to convey my approach because it's hard and, and being on the other side of it as a director meeting heads of department, you're going, how can you, how can I tell? what kind of visuals you're going to bring as a director of photography or what the costumes are going to look like without you having to do all the work now and so how do you communicate that I think is an ongoing question that we're all kind of trying to answer and learn I guess and get better at so I guess for me I'm still refining that approach but I find it is it's a mixture of really trying to get a real understanding of the story and what I think the story is what I connect with and what I respond to because in a starting point that allows me to have a conversation 
conversation with whoever I'm talking to about it and it allows us to work out whether we're on the same page. I think that really helps me to kind of find a way in and access it. The second thing is tone. I think tone is so key to a project and I work a lot in comedy and comedy drama and that's where tone is such a delicate balance like of light and dark and edge and warmth and all of that stuff. And I love, I mean, my favorite projects are things that straddle that. But again, tone is a way I find of accessing what the project is and what my approach to it would be. And by that, what I mean is if the tone feels quite heightened, then for me, the story world and the visuals often should be quite heightened to match. Or if it feels like a very real where the authenticity and reality of the story is so key to conveying what the writer's trying to convey, then I think the visuals would be well, in my sense, might be kind of um, more grounded and naturalistic. But, you know, there might be something interesting in flipping that. But I think that basically allows me to have a way into how I think about the visuals. Even if something is a written thing that I'm doing or, or an interview that I have, I'll always do visuals as well, because I find that such a useful way in, even if they're just for me. But also it allows me to almost build a kind of presentation of how I'm going to talk about or how I'm going to articulate the visuals because sometimes it can seem a bit like well I know I know I want it to look like this or like I know I want it to look like a Wes Anderson film kind of or I want it to look a bit Coen Brothersy. but how do I actually articulate that but actually the more you collect the images and you start to look at the patterns and the images and understand what it is that you're looking for I think the more that you find a language for talking about that that's certainly what I found and as a result my visual pitches have got stronger but also they've become more organized in a way that I've at the beginning they were just mood mood images and they were just like oh these are images that kind of reflect my feeling and general ideas for this film or this tv project and now I'm able to kind of sort them into images that show framing images that show lighting images that help talk about tone so I'll be able to say you know I'll use framing in a comedic way in order to enhance the moments of comedy but then I'll also use framing in in other ways in order to show those moments of loneliness or intimacy or whatever it is so I can then find a language that kind of goes alongside the visuals if that makes sense or helps me to describe the visuals sometimes just by kind of building that little document for yourself which you may get to show or you may not get to show it can be a useful way of ordering your thoughts and and also I think giving you confidence confidence is such a, a kind of elusive evolving thing I think we all feel like or I certainly feel like I'd love to have more confidence but then I'm also aware I've got more confidence than maybe I used to have or I must have a certain amount of confidence in order to be putting myself out there one of the things I've actually found that has given me a lot of confidence is mentoring because what's been really nice is I've been mentored and I mentor so there's a lovely kind of and I think I think it's something that as an industry we should do more of is like a chain of mentoring because I've kind of gained so much from being mentored by an old and more experienced director but I also have found that in the process of mentoring someone starting out or several people starting out it's allowed me to acknowledge and really recognize 
how far I've come and what I've learned. And then I also think that it's constantly trying to remind yourself that it's not an end goal. It's the process, the process of making things, the process of directing and of your career. It's all it's all a process. And, you know, that that applies specifically to the project as well, because so often, especially with something like a TV show, you're working on it for so long, but that by the time it finishes, you've kind of lost sight of whether it's good anymore. And, and in a way, you've kind of got to love the process otherwise you're not going to get the reward I think my husband suggested I should write down like what I've learned in each kind of time I've been in an edit because I feel like that's where I look up the shots that I got or the the ideas I had and see whether they worked or see what worked what didn't work and I think that's where I've built up the kind of tools or the lessons that I then can take confidence from next time because I know I learned that lesson began very much wanting to make films which related to my own personal experience but not in a autobiographic way so I'd think about something which was I mean often a concern in my daily life it tended not to be something which was uh, which was giving me a lot of pleasure and then I'd try and find a narrative which extrapolated that and, and sometimes I guess obscured it as well and then used that as the scaffold to tell a story. That's Harry Lighton, the BAFTA-nominated writer and director of short films such as Run Boys, Sunday Morning Coming Down, and Leash, talking about the types of stories he's interested in telling. You're about to hear more from Harry as he discusses formal innovation in filmmaking and why that should go hand-in-hand with the content, rather than for the sake of boldness. A good example of that is the very first film I made, which you absolutely can't find anywhere. It was called Three Speech, very witty title, with (laughs) three... T-H-R-E-E. And it was about a guy who had a form of obsessive compulsive disorder where he could only communicate in sentences where the total number of words were divisible by three. It was a fairly uh, high concept idea. And within that, there was there was a scene where he was masturbating to a soundtrack of, of poems which were written in these in these word triplets. And that for me was uh, at the time I hadn't come out of the closet. So it was me trying to find a way to communicate a, a sense of repressed desire or an inability to form romantic relationships with people through a very extrapolated, distant narrative device. Now I spend as much time, I'd say, thinking about how to make something which is formally interesting to me or formally innovative as I do trying to make something which has a a narrative which is personal and I think that's probably been the biggest change is the more time I spend watching films the more I feel this desire to try and do something different on a formal level as opposed to simply tell a story which hasn't been seen before. Personally for me when I first saw Victoria the one-shot film I thought wow that's unbelievable that's the coolest thing ever and since then there's been a kind of onslaught of of like tv episodes told in one take or more films told in one take and by dint of it not being original to me it becomes labor and i'm so familiar with the the feeling of tension now in a one shot that it has to do something different to grip me but i think the key is just always relating form to content so never starting out with the intention of making a film in one shot or never starting out with the intention of making a film like, you know, 
Pawlikowski where everything is a certain aspect ratio and locked off and single scenes unfold in one takes. You just have to think, how can I... Well, what you hope, I think, is that you have a story which is original in the first place. And by virtue of that story being original, there should be a form out there which is going to be specific to the story. I think a good example of formal innovation to me, which maybe doesn't punch you in the face, is a film like Tony Erdman, where the form on the surface looks like something we've seen over and over again, which is a kind of documentary realism. And I imagine that people might see it and think, oh, well, maybe there's a link there to Andrea Arnold or something. I wouldn't personally, but actually I think that the form begins in that documentary way and then along with the narrative moves towards surrealism. So it, it ends up in a like very claustrophobic party with a camera language, which is, is like actively propelling the humour of the situation as opposed to just recording the scene. Formal innovation could come in all sorts of forms and it doesn't need to be a punch in the face. What Harry says about artistic choices propelling narrative forward and contributing to the feeling you want to leave audiences with is key. Here he talks about how he formulates a vision and a point of view for his films. For me, it works in two ways. So the first way I make it personal is I tend to begin with theme rather than story. So I'll try and interrogate something, whether it's folk tradition or whether it's body image I've been looking at recently. And I'll almost treat it like a kind of essay where I'll go and I'll spend like days or even weeks reading around the subject and looking at like secondary criticism and looking at film history as well which have approached similar themes and then I'll formulate an opinion on it my opinion on it and then I'll try and marry that with a way I can see it being formally interesting in film so that's one way of making it personal is by making it opinionated not in the sense that the film is gonna be declaring that opinion but that it's coming from a point of view and then the other way I do it, I think, which is probably more conventional, is within the kind of microcosm of the film, I'll then place characters or scenes which do directly relate to my own experience and fold in the personal that way. I think the first thing which I do is go to photography often, go to photography and image. So whether it's painting or even film. And with a film like Remboys, there was a clear archive which I could access, which related to this, this outdated tradition of hunting the wren. So I remember scouring the internet for photography on the tradition and then finding these amazing images from the 1930s. These like, I mean, they actually looked like they were out of a Pawlikowski film, but like stark black and white, very composed images of these six-year-old boys wearing like crazy straw outfits. And then alongside that, there was also a... a oral archive so lots of interviews of people talk discussing the tradition and as the years went on that oral archive began to change so you had people criticizing the tradition as well as people who said no we need to keep on with this and I found that that gave me a really good stock of both landscape and character and also like dialogue to work with so I'm that way I managed to get inside the rhythms of speech which was specific to the story that's actually something which is consistent across all my projects actually if I think about it as a way of getting to like the texture of what I'm trying to do I've been working on this film about sumo wrestling now for a fair while 
And with that film, I found that actually there was a limit to how much I could get inside that world from my desk in, in London. So very kindly, my producers in the BBC sent me off to live with these sumos in a, in a stable, which is the equivalent of a, I guess, like a boarding school. And I got to live with them for two weeks. And so I think that depending on your distance from the project, if you're writing something which you know inside out, then obviously you don't need to do the same kind of interrogation. But I had never been to Japan. I certainly only had that basic idea of sumo wrestling, which you grew up with watching like trans world sport if you were born in the early 90s, where it seems like there's a couple of big fat guys running into each other and it's funny. And so I knew that part of the interest of the project to me was trying to see what was actually you know what the world was actually like as opposed to this 2d idea i had but i i wouldn't have carried through with the project if i hadn't been able to i don't think go out and actually witness it myself because for me definitely there is a limit to what the imagination can do without first-hand experience i definitely need to feel like there's a reality to the world which i'm writing in and I need to feel like I understand that reality. One of the main components of the BFI Network Short Film Fund application, and indeed any press kit created for your short film, is the director's statement. So we asked Harry how he approaches disseminating his vision for potential funders, collaborators, and audiences alike. What his advice is for saying a lot with a little, be that the word count in your application, or the running time of your actual film, and what ambition means to him. I do remember, like, agonising over over each word in that Film London for me application process. And I think that's because the words limits they always give you, obviously, because they have to read hundreds are very limited. And so I did feel like each word was was either gonna make or break the application. What's gonna appeal to the funders in my experience is that combination of originality in the project, technique in the writer and the director, and then also what we've talked about, which is the personal relationship between the creators and the project. So it was about trying to communicate those three things within the short space on the page. The hardest one was, I think, I think showing that you had a sort of technical sophistication in a in a like written written application is obviously the two things feel a bit counterintuitive. But but you know if you're the writer or if you're not getting your writer to contribute if you're the director to that application makes a lot of sense because they will likely have a, an ability to spin words into images that are evocative, whether it's describing what your first image is going to be and taking them by the scruff of the neck with that or finding some other way to show that you're thinking about this film as a film, not just thinking about it as a story which you want to tell. For me, a good example of always wanting to extend the short film narrative and it being better suited not to, to actually try and condense it, is Remboys because I was constantly fighting with the page limit which Film London had, which was 10 pages, and I ended up shooting a shooting a like 40-minute film and then butting heads with the people at Film London because I said, I'm not going to cut it down anymore. And after that, a lot of argy-bargy, I then listened to them and took out a, a long scene which I thought was pivotal to the narrative, but they kept saying, no, it was a distraction because it was adding an extra element to the film 
five years later or whatever, I think they were totally right. And I look back on that argument and feel a bit embarrassed because I was trying to do too much. I was trying to spoon in other thematic interests of mine into a short film, which was a love story and it had no place in that love story. I think what you need to do is work out really what the most important image in that short film is and the most important thing you want the audience to feel when the film finishes is and then be incredibly strict about trying to carve out the flab until you're you're really distilling distilling your that intention into the short film i've never i don't think watched a short film at a festival and thought this should have had more you know more minutes i only ever watched them in festivals and go uh, I wish they'd started that film five pages later. A good way to start is honestly, honestly, like see if you can begin the story four pages later than you have in your outline, because I think there's an intrigue in starting a story for the audience. There's an intrigue in joining a story when you're not entirely sure where that story is situated. And the temptation with writing a short, as I've done in the past, is often to start with someone waking up and then start with them having a conversation in the kitchen with their brother. And then finally they're on the journey to where they're supposed to be going. And you watch it two years later and you're like, well, I should have just started this on the journey. So yeah, always be cutting. I think ambition and boldness actually go hand in hand for me because I see ambition as wanting to make something which surprises an audience. And I mean, it sounds like horribly horribly ambitious to say but also like surprises the film world so I want to put something out there which people watch and they go go gosh I've never seen a story told this way before or I've never seen someone use the form in this way before and like that's where I situate ambition alongside obviously more practical things which I think are important to mention like the ambition to manage to build a career out of filmmaking is one which I like, definitely started out with and I'm incredibly grateful for rather than having to juggle multiple jobs. I think that's a very obvious pragmatic ambition, but in terms of the filmmaking itself, ambition to me means trying to do something original. A good way I think to test that ambition of, or test the idea of boldness is to go to short film festivals and see which films in a programme of a hundred stand out Well, the idea for Princess came about with, I had an idea that was in my mind for a while, which was what would happen if a mother were to leave her daughter. That's quite a, a romantic idea. It's not, it's not something that would really happen. A mother wouldn't leave her daughter in a cafe on a, on a Friday night. But that was a general idea. And what we did from then on was kind of work our way backwards into, into thinking of a story. That's Adam Kelman, a 2021 Screen Daily Star of Tomorrow and the writer-director of a self-funded, low-budget short called Princess. Set in Dalston, East London, Adam mixed professional and non-actors to tell the story of a troubled mother who wants to give her daughter a brilliant day out. Here he talks about how he developed that story, why he wanted to tell it through the medium of cinema, and how he got a group of friends and collaborators together in order to make it, as well as some tricks for stretching the budget. Princess came about at a time where I'd, you know, I'd done smaller projects before and I, I was trying to find my voice and I kind of just became a bit jaded by the whole kind of theatrics behind filmmaking 
all the other elements that come into play when you're coming up with an idea it can be quite it feels quite artistic and <laughs> when you get on set it can it can be quite hectic and it can become quite mechanical so i just wanted something that was very simple and i wanted to 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 really just see if we could uh make an audience feel something that was that was the goal it was it was never to make something that would <laughs> would go on to benefit my career in any way like that but it was just can 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 we make an audience feel something developing princess was actually quite quite simple at, at, at the start of it it was it was how can we do something quite quite small it was more just writing a script and then constantly returning to it each night and thinking of moments that i felt spoke to towards a mother daughter relationship like there's a scene that we <laughs> by fault of the way we kind of uh were shooting it we'd planned to to get a scene which would be the mother and the daughter in in the photo booth taking taking a picture together and the the mother would slip the picture into into her bag and you know on the day you get to the train station and you try and shoot in a photo booth and i just like what the hell's going on here it was just finding these moments which i felt were really really honest and quite magical we wanted it to feel slightly uplifting and concentrate not on the tragedy behind it all but the joy of it all so yeah so it was just it was just kind of bullet pointing ideas and and moments and then after writing them into the script whenever i i kind of go into a project especially after princess i try to develop a a relationship with the cast i try to cast as close to as as to the characters as i can i like the idea that they're real people so much of the the performances and and the way that we filmed it was kind of guided by or informed by the characters themselves you know you you have a child who you've street cast who's i think at the time she was 6 so that means that she's <laughs> she's not going to do well with dialogue she's not going to to perform in any way that you you want her to you have to bend the film um in accordance to to who she is and she's she's just a child but there's also something quite beautiful in that which is the fact that if she can play she will play and if she can run around she'll run around and if she can eat on screen she'll eat on screen you know she won't kind of process it in any kind of intellectual way before even uh, as an actor might or 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 an adult might which is quite beautiful so it's kind of bending the film towards that and also taking quite a documentary approach to it all so what we did was i would uh i would spend every day with her after school get to know her have a chat go to mcdonald's do things that she might do with our mother character and then after that what we'd do is we'd i brought in rabina who's an actor and a fantastic actor and they developed a relationship so that meant that when we did have a crew on on the day and we were filming there's only really one person who she can turn to you know with all the the the, the the theatrics of a of a film crew. There's only one person she can really turn to, and that would be Rabina. And in that, there's a truth and there's an honesty. I hope because that's what a daughter does. She turns to her mother. Getting Princess made was well. I I'd saved up a bit of money and just wanting to make something actually quite quickly and quite urgently. I I needed to make something. I needed to make a film just because I'm I'm a bit of a hustler and I just wanted to make something so badly. I was like the the last thing that I. Had, I'd made or I tried to make didn't work 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 at all really so I was like, I need to make something and I I knew somebody that was studying film at Cambridge who was interested in production and I I I me and my friend Michael we 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 took the train and we met up with him I presented him with a script and 
you know, a couple of months later, he was like, let's do this, let's make it, let's, I'll produce it. That's how we went about making it. We we knew we didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, you you kind of use that to an advantage. You know, you pick your crew on people who, who have a desire to get on like you do, who have that same hunger and, and you know, <laughs> they work for for a bit less money but they they put a lot of heart into it and it's the same it's the same with equipment you know and i don't believe that you know you have to shoot on the best camera to to tell the best story i think i think there's something quite beautiful even if you shot your film on an iphone so that's not what we did but we we approached michael flacomo who who was graduating nfts and as you know if somebody's at nfts they get their equipment for free so <laughs> that was a big chunk of the budget and that's just kind of how we hustled it and then after we we shot on location and and that was fantastic because he was going and we'd have like maybe a hundred pound budget till then he'd be like come back and he got it for a lot less so you just get a, a group of like-minded people uh together and, and and you go ahead and you and you make it you know i'd never been to film school but what i do have is good friends good friends who are fanatic about films as much as i am and they will always and we work together via whatsapp you know whatsapp group chat and we're constantly sending each other references but what they do that's really special when we're prepping or when I'm prepping or when they're prepping is we'll always ask each other why. Why do you want to shoot on this camera? Why do you want to shoot on this lens? You know, why are you moving the camera? Why are you choosing these actors, you know, or non-actors or first-time actors? And just by having them constantly questioning you, you kind of develop a theory. Hopefully within that theory is your voice. And that's kind of how we, or at least I, I learned to direct in a way. And then also it's just pulling references. You pull references not to be derivative, but because you're not yet at, or I'm not yet at a stage where I'm completely assured or technically, you know, skilled enough to know that, oh, this is what an 150 millimeter will give me, or this is what a 50 millimeter will give me. So I look at specific references. I think, you know, there's that moment in Princess when they're walking down the high street. And I'm not ashamed to say that that came from Midnight Cowboy because I was watching midnight cowboy and I, I saw you know how they were able to use real people on the street and allow that to give them a level of production design and embellish the frame but also tell their story and I think I think that's how I approach directing by watching films or by referencing films you can get a certain amount of uh, confidence and, and assurance into towards your vision the first shot in princess is, is a balloon and I'd always imagined that that was going to fill the frame blue you know, and I think I think this is a good example. I always imagined that it was going to fill the frame blue. And on the day, I'm like to the DP, like, bro, like, <laughs> why, why is it not filling the frame? Um, and he was like, yeah, but on the lens, this is the max lens where we're maxed out on the zoom. We can't get any closer. It can't fill the frame. So in that moment, you kind of either throw a hissy fit or you accept it and, and you move on. And I, what I like to do as somebody that wants to have a vision and execute it is I'd want to know what it takes to get that blue balloon to fill the frame, you know, and, and fill that gap. But in terms of how I learned to, how I directed them, um, I work closely with my friends, have a lot of conversations, go about it in quite an academic way, you know, why, what's your reasoning? And then after with on the on the performance side of things is I get close, you know, I develop a relationship. And you hope that that serves you on the day. Yeah, on, on the budgeting front, it you know, it's it's you can either look at it as a limitation or you can look at it as an advantage, you know. I kind of had to ask myself, what what do I why do I gravitate towards a long lens? And the truth is I think it's like in short films, uh, if you don't have a lot of money 
and you know everything's in focus your background is in focus you're going to reveal the fact that you had no money to shoot on right but if you shoot on a lens lens and, and every and, and you know the, the background is slightly out of focus and and your focus is now on the central characters well the audience's sole point of focus and and what they're drawn into the world is the characters and that was one of the tricks i i used on on princess to get away from the fact that there was there was practically no money you've got to be quite specific about who you bring on board you know no one didn't want to work for money he's trying to come up as well and and michael as well who's a fantastic dop is willing to take a chance on somebody that hasn't really done much you know in terms of budgeting it's you want to put as much of it on screen and you want to not necessarily hide the fact that you don't have a lot of money but you want to tell a story which doesn't require a lot of money you know some of the best films that we watch are documentaries you know things that are just a camera in a room with people living and existing and it hits you on a level that's unreal we we put money into the film and then after we we saw what we'd made and we said that you know we'll keep on working i was working noah was working and when it came around the festival or a bit of post-production we would on a monthly basis put a bit of our our wage or salary into into the film and i should also mention that i've i've got a few collaborators now who i've worked with for a while who who understand what i'm trying to do or or believe in 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 my voice and it's kind of now our voice when we come together and we'll we'll go over time you know miles was editing and doing dit um and it and having him on set was was amazing because he he helps he helps me direct in many ways you know ultimately what adam is saying is find your tribe which i'm sure is advice that you'll hear again over the course of this series it's about finding collaborators who are at your level who have the same hunger you do and are willing to put in that time to get that short film made don't worry, in the next episode, we'll be covering how you find that tribe in more detail. In the meantime, part of the application process as a director is stating how your short film project connects with your aspirations and what it might enable you to practice and explore. Here, Adam talks about how making Princess has furthered his career and what it's allowed him to do. The truth is Princess opened a lot of doors, you know, and we never expected it. But what it, what I think Princess has and what I think it's allowing me to do is is get closer to finding my voice princess has given me confidence that has informed me on how i'd like to work because as things get slightly bigger i can always use princess as a point of reference on on a level of of what i'd like to achieve i i want to make films where people watch it and just say wow that felt dumb real <laughs> that felt so real and because it felt so real I felt a lot more. Princess has allowed me to see characters, you know, that reflect me in a way that I haven't, that I don't regularly see them shown on screen with an honesty that I don't really see them shown on screen. I, I'm extremely collaborative. I, I try to build a family, which I learned from Prince, Princess. But, but but also on another level, it's Princess allowed, allowed me a certain level of confidence to say, yes, I, I, I'm a filmmaker. And yes, my time isn't wasted <laughs> watching films, learning. My time isn't wasted spending time with real people. My time isn't wasted, you know, cycling around, investigating stories. And I mean, you know, the great thing about Princess is 
is that you know when I when I was approaching the little girl in that film, the mum was like, "You're not, you're not a filmmaker. Why do you want to spend time with with my daughter to put a camera to 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 film her and tell this story?" But now it after Princess, it's like, no, you know, type my name in Google, something comes up now. I'm actually a a filmmaker. I'm able to to use that to 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 convince people to to want to be on screen and tell and tell stories together. Thank you for listening to Shorthand. Look out for a new episode next week that will focus on producing, what that is, how you can do it, and where you find people to collaborate with. Thank you to our guests this week, Ella Jones, Harry Lighton, and Adam Kelman. Shorthand is a BFI Network and Film Hub Southeast podcast produced by Nicole Davis with support from the BFI Network and ICO team. Special thanks to our editor, Graciela Mechico, and Epidemic for the music. <laughs>